Today's reading is from John chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you today. Uh, For those who don't know me, my name is Anthony Gambage. I'm the lead pastor here. And our purpose here is to know Jesus and make him known. And, and we're actually digging into that phrase quite a bit. It's the very end of the text that we're going to be in today. So if you have your Bibles, let me just encourage you to open your Bible or your app, Bible app, so we can follow along together as we read through. Uh, you can open to John 1. We're going to be in 12 to 18. And if you want to put your thumb in Exodus chapter 33, uh, go ahead and do that as well. We're going to hop back and forth just a little bit. If you didn't bring your Bible, you don't know what the app looks like or whatnot on your phone, it's also in your bulletin. The text is printed there next to the sermon notes. So uh, let me just encourage you to have something open in front of you as we walk through the text here today. Well, so far we've, uh, we've started a couple weeks ago the Gospel of John. And as we've walked through, we've uh, looked at the reality that John is, has written every word in this book through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to basically uh, show us that Jesus Christ is God, right? And that he is also Savior. And that by believing in that, we may have eternal life. That's his purpose. He says it. He's not hiding anything from us. And the reason we're studying it is because we want to wrestle with what is the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. Not something we can make up in our mind, not some narrow sliver that we read one little verse in the Bible and go, well, that's all of Jesus's character. But, but just to sit in and soak in and be in awe of who Jesus Christ actually is. First three verses, we saw John introduce this person called the Word, who is Jesus, and he basically says, Jesus is God. Last week, he said, hey, uh, God, who is the light and life, broke onto the scene in human history, and we said, hey, we have to wrestle with and do something with that, right? And so today, we're going to be looking at John 1, 12 to 18, that unpacks a little bit more of of what it means or, or what it actually looked like for Jesus to show up on the scene. So before we dive into the text, let me just ask you this just to get our brains turning a little bit. What's your favorite story? You know, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a movie, but, but what is your favorite story? You know, there's been a, a TV show that's come out here in the last, well, I don't know when it came out. I get my times wrong, but uh, The Ring of Power, have you seen that on Amazon Prime, right? Uh, so mixed bag as to how all the Lord of the Rings nerds like myself are receiving this TV show. Some of us are like, it's not true to the book, whatever. I, I've actually found it to be quite enjoyable, although different. Um, but it reminded me of the story that really captured my heart and got me into reading a lot more. Uh, Lord of the Rings, about 20 years ago or so. That was when I was in total geekdom back then with, with that uh, book series. And, and uh, what compelled me was just, you know, first of all, the way that Tolkien wrote about beauty. 
right? I just, I always wanted to go to the Shire. Y'all want to go to the Shire? Did you ever see Lord of the Rings? Like, it's so simple, beautiful. Uh, but then there's that tension that happens when, uh, you know, darkness enters the scene and, and it seems like that innocence of the Shire is broken. There's the companionship that you see all throughout. And then you have uh, the heroism that, that comes throughout the book. Well, whatever your favorite story is, let me just have you imagine for just one second that the section of your favorite story that makes sense of, of the hard things coming untrue or why the suffering happened or who the heroes are and how they became the heroes, imagine if that section that makes sense of the whole thing got ripped out of your book or that scene got deleted from your movie. How would that feel? Would it still be your favorite book or movie? Right? You'd probably be like, no, that, ugh. Well, friends, as we consider the arc of humanity and the story that we find in God's Word, uh, the arc of that story is creation, fall, redemption, and then ultimately God coming back in, in, in His consummation, bringing all things, making all things new again. But in Genesis chapter 3, right, you have creation, and in some ways it, I envision the Shire. Right after that, you have Genesis 3, which is the fall. And in a way, it feels like some pages got ripped out. Darkness enters the scene. What happened? What got broken here? Today, we're going to see the pages kind of get put back in that book, where for years people were asking that same question. But then all of a sudden, we see this God show up on the scene in the flesh through a teaching that we would call the Incarnation. It's what begins to make sense of everything, both what we read in the beginning and what we see in the end of Scripture and understanding the ark of human history. Now, there's one other area we need to do business with, and we ended with a little bit of a thud last week. I don't know if you picked up on that, but, but in verse 11, did you notice where it's like the light and the life came to earth, and, and oh, by the way, his very creation, they didn't even receive him. In fact, his own people who should have received him totally ignored him. You remember that? It ended with a thud. It was kind of hard to figure out how do you land the plane on a sermon like that. Well, this week actually has that solution that we're going to see, but we need to do business with why did his own people and, in fact, his own creation reject him? And it is because of Genesis chapter 3. It's because Adam and Eve, who had perfect fellowship with the God of the universe in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, turned around and said, hey, we want to be God. We want to answer to ourselves We don't want to answer to you, and we're going to go our own way. And that's where sin and death and all forms of brokenness entered. And guess what happened to that good relationship that was in chapters 1 and 2? It was completely severed. In fact, God kicked them out of the garden, put a couple of angels with swords there, right? It introduced this idea of our separation from God that every single human being from the moment of conception experiences. We read the why behind it. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear this term, total depravity, and we reject that. We're like, I'm not depraved. I'm fine, right? I mean, we we just kind of think that way. And depravity, when we talk about it, doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means what we read here in our confession of faith. Did you hear it? It said, but Adam fell, exchanging the glorious light of your love for the darkness of sin and rebellion. And we confess, we just said this together, that we are in Adam as he sinned, And we are just like Adam as we continue to make that same choice each day. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that from the moment of conception, we actually uh, pledge our own allegiance to a king that is completely opposed to the creator king of the universe. That's who we are by nature. Whether we see ourselves as bad or not, we need a spiritual rebirth 
to change our heart, our dead hearts to hearts of flesh. And so that's the bad part. That's the tension in our story we're going to see, but we're going to focus on the adding of those pages back in and see what God's solution to that separation is. So let's dig in today. We're going to be looking first at verses 12 and 13, uh, moving from rejection to children. Uh, But before we do, let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, we come before you today as a people who, honestly, if I'm honest, that separation from you, it's just hard to grab sometimes. I, I know I seem to think I'm pretty awesome. And Lord, I think some of us, probably all of us in our pride, think the same. And we, we don't believe that we are as spiritually dead to you as we are. But Lord, for those who have also experienced your grace and mercy, we also know what it's like for our hearts to come alive. And so Lord, a sermon on the incarnation, it just feels like no human words can do it justice. In fact, they can't. But through your revelation and your scripture, we know that your spirit can work to to make this pop today, to both convince us of who we are apart from you, but who we are in you through the great grace that you have lavished on us. And so, Lord, help us to see both and help us to just walk with you this morning. Be with us, Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, to backtrack just a touch. Think about the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testaments at all. When we talk about this separation from God, you see it all throughout the Old Testament, don't you? Angels with swords outside of the garden. When God met with Moses, which we just read about here on the screen, what did God do uh, around Mount Sinai? He said, Moses, I'm going to meet with you. He actually put basically caution tape around the bottom of the mountain, and he said, Moses, don't let anybody go near because they're not worthy to come. In fact, if they touch the mountain, stone them or shoot them with arrows. Seems harsh, I know, right? But that's what it says in Exodus chapter 19. When God had his presence come among his people, especially in the temple, it happened in the Holy of Holies. And what separated the Holy of Holies from everything else? A huge 60-foot curtain, right? Which was torn, by the way, when Jesus died on the cross. There's a lot to that. But there's this theme of of the separation that exists between us and God because he is perfect and glorious and holy and we are not and we are by nature his enemies. But there's a beautiful truth here in 12 and 13 that John is telling us here's how you move from rejection and enemies of God to actually his children. The word but there, right? You pay attention to it. But to all who did receive him. All right, so let's talk about this idea of of receiving Jesus and what that means. So if you've grown up in what we would call an evangelical church, you might hear the term, uh, you need to receive Jesus Christ. Okay, we need to define our terms a little bit. When I say the term evangelical, that brings a whole mess of information with it in our day and time. Let me just tell you what the term evangelical church, at least in its inception, actually meant. It had nothing to do with a voting block. It had nothing to do with conservative politics, full stop. What it meant was, it was a church who basically subscribed to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the need for conversion, all right, submission to God's word as the ultimate authority, and then evangelism, sharing that gospel. That's when I use the term evangelical, I mean, just so we're clear, just need to be clear. Loaded terms need to be clear, okay? But in those churches, you'll hear, you need to receive Jesus. What does that mean? Have you ever wondered that? Well, John gives one of the clearest explanations of it right here. He kind of puts it in parentheses for it, where it says, as many who have received him to all, to all who believe in his name. So to receive Jesus means we believe in his name. All right, so what does that mean? 
All right, so the idea of believe in his name. The idea of name, I grew up in kind of a little bit more of the formal South, where essentially to, uh, you know, your parents would say, hey, don't do anything to like mess up the family name, right? Because the family name uh, carries with it this idea of it's the character of a person or it's who the person actually is. Now I was working really hard and this may or may not fly, so bear with me as I tried this illustration. Uh, but, but as I was trying to think of how we believe in a name, uh, we had a lot of construction done over the last couple years in our house. I bored you to tears with those stories, so I'm not going to go into detail with that. But it was fascinating as I began to talk to all of these people in the different trades. And I said, hey, you have a DeWalt, you have Milwaukee, like, why do you have those brands? And it's quite remarkable to hear people as they talk about their tools, right? They're just like, oh, well, DeWalt, man, you could run that thing over with the tank and throw it off a roof and all this stuff. And it's just amazing. It does exactly what it says. And Anthony, when I'm working with saws, the last thing I want to do is cut my arm off. And I know I can trust a DeWalt. The batteries last forever and, and so on and so forth. So there's this remarkable amount of allegiance to that name, trusting it completely to do what it says it will do. And they become little DeWalt evangelists or Milwaukee evangelists. Milwaukee people are usually like, oh, DeWalt, it's overpriced. And these do the same thing for the same amount of money, right? So I'm not mocking you. Your voices don't sound like that if you're a tradesperson. I just, I just do voices. It adds to the storytelling. But, but here's, here's what, and you can, you can do the name thing with everything, Honda, Toyota, whatever it may be. But, but what I think John is saying here as it pertains to Jesus and what it means to believe in his name is that we're yielding our allegiance to him in trust that we believe that what he says he will do, he will do. Sometimes even if we don't understand it, we believe who it is he says we are apart from him and who it is we are in him as he's lavished his grace out to us on the cross. I think it also means that we speak of him with gratitude to other people. So it's not a hard formula. It just means to believe in Jesus is by faith. By faith means we will never do it personally, but we will say, Jesus, I trust you. You are who you say you are. You did what you said you did for me. And by believing that I can have eternal life with you. That's it. Full stop. In essence, it is that simple. That's the idea of receive. And uh, the rest of this passage in 12 and 13, we see this picture of rights. It says, whoever received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he goes on, and he has a strange phrase we'll talk about, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, so what does he mean here first by having the right to become children? Okay. The term, like, we are all God's children, right? It's kind of a throwaway term now. We don't necessarily understand culturally what that means. But to be a child, particularly in these biblical times, it was the understanding, right? You go back and you read some of the prayers of blessings that the patriarchs had over their children, right? In in a way, being a child means we receive a form of blessing. It also means there is an inheritance for us, right? That's another aspect of being a child. And there's also protections and love that come from being a child. And so in a way, there is this huge theological shift showing up on the scene right now where John is saying, hey, up until this point, who were God's children? Think about that for a second. Up until this point, who was defined as being God's children? It was essentially the nation of Israel or the sojourners or strangers who uh, connected to them in the worship of God. But now we have a huge shift where he's saying, it is not pedigree, it is not your bloodline, it is simply a work of God by receiving Jesus, that you become his children. 
Now, if you're wondering whereby at the end of the book you have the Jewish people, his own people, Israel, wanting to kill him, you should circle this and say this is one reason. Because there is a shift saying a child of God doesn't mean you're a part of the nation of Israel. It means you simply receive his name. Now, where am I? I lost myself in my notes. I'm on the wrong page. So as he, where are are we? All right, so as it goes, he goes, we are born not of flesh, right? So it's saying it's not your pedigree. It's not your parents, right? It's not your background. And then he goes on, and those three terms are basically saying, hey, there's nothing physical about being a part of God's family. It all has to do with being born of God. Did you see that? Not born of human beings in any way, shape, or form, but it is simply a work of God. Now, in a way, for many of us, this might relieve some tension, right? You know, if you're like me, you don't come from this huge Christian pedigree. You're, you're not sitting there going, oh, you know, we, you know, my great-great-grandfather planted a church and we're pastors and so on and so forth. I grew up in the church and, and what have you. And, and in some ways you're going, wow, like this is for me. I'm not of that pedigree. But for some of us, it causes tension because in pride, we tend to hold up our church-going, you know, uh, resume to God. I've always gone to church. My grandfather was a pastor and da-da-da-da-da. And God's like, that doesn't matter. There's great blessings in that, right? But he's saying, new life and new birth starts with me by believing in my name. All right, so we move from rejection to being children as we believe on Jesus' name. But, but, but like, how, how does that actually happen? How do we get to that point? How does that bring new life? Well, verse 14, the first part, it's because God came to us. Do you see what it says? This word, who we haven't heard about since those first few verses, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God put on skin and came to earth to be with us. It's like us becoming an ant. I don't know. I'm not even sure if that's a fair. It's probably some sort of terrible thing I just said from a heresy standpoint. I don't mean to do that, but, but it, it, it's to that extent, if not way, way more, right? Let's start at the end or kind of in the midway point of that verse. It says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This idea of glory, the the Greek term is doxa, think doxology there, right? So he's saying we have seen the glory of God, Hebrews 1 says, in the exact same way in Jesus as we do the father throughout all the rest of the Old Testament. There is no difference. Now here's the thing about glory, and we've already looked at it a little bit, it's not always good to see glory. It's not always good to see glory. Go back. Let's peek at Exodus 33, uh, verses 18 to 20. So uh, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And, and he said, I will, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. But then he said in 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God is so glorious that God had to put Moses in the cleft of a rock, cover his eyes, go before him, and as he kind of took his hand off, Moses peeked. And he just saw his backside, is essentially what it says. And Moses, dude, came down from the mountain glowing, and he just saw the back of God. If he would have seen the front, he is so glorious, he would have been eviscerated. That's not good news just to see glory. We'll sing, show me your glory. We kind of don't want to see it sometimes. Right? Go through the prophets. How does he say my glory is going to be seen in some of those places? By destroying my enemies. That is a swallow hard moment. So we need to be careful with our, what we think is our understanding of seeing God's glory. But how does that kind of bad news become good news? What's well, the first part? 
of that verse in 14. Did you see what he said? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, that is a term in Greek that is loaded. It essentially can be read, uh, pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. And that's going back to, again, the book of Exodus 25. God's with his people. He said, I want to dwell with you. And he said, basically, he asked him to make them a sanctuary or a tabernacle, essentially, is what he's asking him to do, that I may dwell in your midst. This idea of tabernacle is God saying, I'm going to be with you, to dwell with you, to be your God and live with you. Now, in a way, that is absolutely terrifying for God's people if they're just reading this because it's like sticking a space shuttle right here in the middle of our sanctuary and turning it on, right? That's, what, that's how glorious God actually is. But Jesus comes down to us and reveals himself in a way where he can be seen without us being destroyed in Jesus Christ. So where we could not cross the barrier of separation, Jesus crossed it and came to us. Here's a relatively modern example of seeing glory not being a good thing. So uh, Jacob Lee, he was an associate pastor here for years, a dear brother who is now with the Lord in glory. Uh, when he was on our staff team, uh, he could be somewhat stubborn from time to time. Uh, and so I don't know if you remember the eclipse. Do you remember the eclipse that happened a number of years ago? So remember, like if you were children growing up in that time, you, you were traumatized by how much you were told, don't look at the sun, don't look at the sun during the eclipse, don't do it, wear glasses, get the little reflection thing. Do you remember that? Anybody? So we talked about this as a staff team. It was happening over a work day and, and we're like, let's, let's go outside and look. But we're like, don't look at the sun. Like you'll burn your eyes, right? I go outside and we're looking and some of us have the glasses and some of us have the little reflective thing. And, and I hear over my shoulder Jacob's ver- voice where he's like, whoa, that's so cool. And I look over at him and he's just like, <laughs> he's just looking. There's no glasses on this dude. He is just staring. And, and we're like, Jacob, like we're tackling him. And we didn't tackle Jacob. Um, but, 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 you know, we told him, don't look directly at it because seeing that much of the glory of the sun will destroy you. And so in a way, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is like God giving us a pair of those glasses so that we can actually finally look at God and say, this is how God engages with us. This is how he engages with grief and with suffering, right? This is how he cares for the poor. This is how much he loves us. What this means is that we're not going to find God outside of Jesus. We're not going to find them through rationalism as we just look at the world and go, okay, I can see this and this and this and put it together and I'm going to get there. We're also not going to find them through the feels and mysticism and go, if I just feel God, then I will discover him. What God is saying is that in Jesus, we see the fullness of the God of the universe. Full stop. Here's the last point. In Jesus, there is grace and glory you can know. Verse 14, the second part of it, he says, We have seen his glory, glory as only the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that is a loaded term, full of grace and truth. First of all, it's this idea of abundance. There is no lack of these two things in Jesus. He is full with it, never running out. But you know, grace and truth doesn't just mean, oh, that means he's gracious, but he's also truthful. Or when he's truthful, he's also gracious. That's not wrong. But those two ideas essentially point us back. When you see those two terms together in the New Testament, it's pointing us back to some of the most well-known descriptions of God in Exodus chapter 34. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can flip back there, 34.6. But here's what he says. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord, a merciful, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, steadfast love, or mercy is another way to say that, and faithfulness. Grace in the New Testament, when combined with truth, is pointing to those two terms, steadfast love and faithfulness, as we see it repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. And so, again, he's basically pulling us back to the Old Testament, saying, that God is this God, Jesus. That amount of grace that you saw back then is the same amount of grace you see here, and that amount of truth, which means he's completely faithful to himself in the Old Testament, is the same amount of faithfulness to himself that we see in Jesus. So often we look at things that might be merciful or gracious, but it sacrifices truth. And sometimes we look at things that are truth and it sacrifices steadfast love. And it's saying, in Jesus, you will never see those two things disagree. Louise Amparini, Unbroken, that's another one of my favorite stories. I don't know if you know that one, right? Uh, the book is far better than the movie. Don't watch the movie. It's meh at best. But, but here's, um, sorry if I offended anyone who loves the movie there. Uh, but there's one scene where they crash in the plane and three of the guys survive and they're in the raft and, and they have like a certain number of chocolate squares and a certain amount of water to survive. And they're out in the middle of nowhere on the ocean. And Louis Zamperini is like, okay, you get two chocolate squares and three ounces of water a day and that's how we're going to survive. And the reason this one scene sticks out in my mind is one of the guys, Mac, I think it was his name, he ends up eating all the chocolate one night while they were asleep, right? Oh, man, I'd be angry. But that has nothing to do with the sermon. What I'm going for... <laughs> Is, is sometimes we treat God like Louis Zamperini with the chocolate, especially with regards to grace. We just kind of feel like God's like, well, here's a little bit of grace. You know, this will kind of get you through the day, but it might not cover these other things over here. But what does it say in 16? Out of his abundance, his fullness, we also receive grace upon grace. That term there in verse 17 where he says, um, sorry, verse 16, where he says we've received grace upon grace. That term upon there, it's a preposition in the Greek, and, and there's just all sorts of stuff going on with it. Lots of words have been written about that word, but to me, and there's different positions about exactly what it means, grace upon grace, I think John was just a master of pulling this idea of abundance together with that strange phrase that you see in 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Are you wondering what that means? I'm wondering what that means, or at least I was, uh, before I, I started looking at this. Here's, here's what that term upon could mean, right? One and one of the most popular answers is saying, hey, because of that abundance, his grace is like the waves at the ocean. You ever gone to the ocean? How often do the waves stop? Never. They never stop, in case you didn't know. He's saying that is how abundance, that is how abundant his grace is. No matter what we do, who we are, his grace washes over us and it never stops. Here's another way to read that term is grace in the place of grace. And I think that's also a way that you can read this. And the reason I say it is it says there about Moses, uh, full of grace and truth, uh, it says, the law was given through Moses in 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law was a form of grace for God's people. I mean, imagine Here's God, this pillar of fire. He said, I want to come down and dwell with you. That's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. And so God, being gracious, gave a, a word of his covenant where he says, hey, this is how you can be in the presence of a holy God. That's what the law does. 
But it's saying that the new grace that has come in Jesus Christ is big G grace. And in a way, the former grace pointed to Jesus, but it wasn't satisfactory. Friends, if you think of the law, and sometimes you're like, I'm not that bad. Just hold on for a second. Can you even keep the laws you make for yourself? I mean, how many times over, over you know, the last year did I go, well, I'm going to sleep more, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to be a better dad, I'm going to be a better pastor, I'm going to do all these betters, and I end up getting crushed under the grind of failing time and time again. If I can't even keep my own laws, why on earth do I think I can keep a perfect God's laws? And he knew that. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ to come down to be a greater grace on top of a good grace that he gave us, right? But law-keeping is never the true grace. It is pointing us to a greater need. Here's 18, and we'll wrap up with this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. All right, so he's at the Father's side. It's translated like that because it's a weird idiom in the Greek where he's like, he's in his Father's bosom, right? that wouldn't read very well. You'd be like, that's weird, right? But that idea means there's an intimacy between the two so that they know each other perfectly. And he's saying that Jesus, that God, is who is with us now, and because he is here, this holy and glorious God is now knowable. And so let me read this quote, well, adapted quote from N.T. Wright. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God would love in any situation look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about you, look at Jesus and look at the cross and him dying for you. If you want to know how God handles grief or suffering or poverty, and the list could go on, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Friends, if these are the pages that make sense of all of human history and the suffering and and how all of the hard things will eventually be made right and how we can know the God of the universe, I would just say this. Today, we have to do something with the incarnation. For my friends who are seeking or unbelievers, would you consider receiving him today? And for my friends who are the crusty believers have been at this for quite some time, and I would put myself in those sorts of categories often, would you let the incarnation and his abundance of grace push you deeper into your love for him? Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we need your grace upon grace. Lord, in you, loving kindness and mercy perfectly match with faithfulness and truth. Would you give us the eyes of faith to see that and believe that today? Lord, for my friends who are just right on the edge, who are wondering, okay, how do I receive eternal life? How do I know the God of the universe? Lord, help them go no further than that verse we just read, that we simply receive you by believing in your name. Let this be the day that they surrender their allegiance to you. And Father, for those of us who have grown cold to your grace, who think that the law holds the answers as to who we are and we're being crushed under it, forgive us and remind us of your abundant mercy that you are showering upon us that you are never running out of today. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.